Steve, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you for uh, having me. I'm really excited to meet you and to meet your audience. We'll be speaking about growth investments in SaaS companies. But first, perhaps you could say a few words about yourself and Growth Street Partners. I'm one of the two co-founders of Growth Street. Uh, my co-founder is uh, Nate Grossman. We worked together at a much uh, larger growth equity firm before we started Growth Street. And I always think that the story of how we named Growth Street is an interesting way to tell people about the firm and to tell people about our focus. When we first started the firm, we actually wanted to call ourselves Rally Partners. And the reason why we wanted to call ourselves Rally Partners, it should be obvious to anyone that's looked at our website, we love ping pong, we play ping pong all the time, and we would rally with each other and we said, hey, geez, when we rally, number one, we think of lots of good ideas, but number two, you're kind of independently accountable, but you're dependent on each other. You know, it's a little bit competitive, but you're having fun and you're both getting better. And we were like, rally partners, great name. The story's amazing. There's rally ventures, so we couldn't do that. Uh, so we quickly came up with Growth Street Partners and where that originates from is that Growth Street does not invest in the country's major tech centers. We don't invest in San Francisco, New York, Boston. We think about Growth Street in this way, in that we're not investing in Sand Hill Road. We're not investing on Wall Street. We're not even investing on Main Street. We're investing on Growth Street. And Growth Street is a street or two off of Main Street in these second and third and fourth tier cities in the US and Canada. And on Growth Street, the rent is lower. So you're putting more of your money back into the growth of the business. The founders that are there, typically they're founders from industry. So they live the problem that their business now solves. And they're learn-it-alls, not know-it-alls, right? In Silicon Valley, New York, Boston, a lot of the founders of these firms have never lived the problem their business now solves. They saw something and they said, geez, I can do it better. That's okay. You know, you can build amazing businesses, disrupt industries. That's great. The founders that we're partnering with have lived in an industry. They love the industry. They love the customers. They love these folks. And they have seen something that they think that they can make fundamentally better. And those folks are really humble. They're lifelong learners. And when we partner with them, they're looking for help. They're looking for a true partner that's going to help them grow their business. And that's the ethos of Growth Street. And we try to invest to own a meaningful minority percentage in these businesses so that we can be a sounding board to the entrepreneur, but not affirmatively have control over anything. We are acknowledging with the type of investment that we're making that, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Entrepreneur, you know your industry and your customers better than we do. Frankly, you know it better than anyone. And we know B2B scaling, and we think we know it pretty darn well. So if we can marry those two things, if we can really respect the skills and background and experience that we each bring to the table, then we can build something really special. Growth Suite is obviously a growth fund. Could you please explain how growth funds are different from VCs or PE funds? Typically, when we're getting uh, or when we're making an investment in a company, they've already got something that's working, right? They've got a million, two million, three million dollars of revenue, but they haven't quite figured out how to scale it. So when we make an investment of three to 12 million, 
maybe 60% of the dollars are going on the balance sheet. And we're using those dollars to help them scale their business. So investing in their team, in the go-to-market efforts, that would be a little bit different than the venture world where uh, they're still trying to figure out how to get something to work. And then also it would be different than the private equity world where something would have already gotten to scale. Presumably it would already have some operating leverage where they're generating some EBITDA and they can use debt to generate their returns. For us, growth equals returns. We spoke about growth structure prior to the podcast and I found it quite interesting. Could you please say a few words about it? Yeah. The way that we think about Growth Street is in three main functions. So we, like most firms, we have an investment team, we have an operations team, but we also have uh, what we would think of as a product team. On the investment team, we're doing investment research and we're trying to figure out what markets we want to invest in, what kind of companies, which companies, once we get engaged with an entrepreneur, whether the company is good or we can help it, et cetera just like uh, most growth equity firms. Same thing with the operations team where we're trying to figure out how we can help the companies. The product piece is really important though. So most growth equity firms out there, you know, they've historically hired armies of cold callers. So the kids who complete a couple of years of investment banking come into the industry and they cold call every company under the sun, trying to uh, break into them. In the software world, we would call those BDRs or SDRs. And what they're trying to do is set appointments for vice presidents. Then if the vice president gets on the phone and they basically do a demo of the growth equity firm, you know, if that all goes well, then they'll pass them on to the partner. And when we started Growth Street, we said, hey, wait a second, we're a B2B business just like our portfolio companies are. And these companies leave digital footprints. The companies do, the entrepreneurs do. We can learn lots about these companies before we ever speak to them. And that means we can know who to call, when to call them, and what to talk to them about. And what it really means is that if we use software and technology to make it such that we can, quote unquote, shoot fish in a barrel, then we can reallocate our internal resources. And we can say, wait a second, instead of spending our resources on convincing the entrepreneur to work with us, we can now spend more of our time figuring out which are the best investments to make and how can we really help the entrepreneurs? So the traditional growth equity model, the pie chart of time might be 50, 60, 70% would be devoted to sourcing. At Growth Street, we try to shrink that as much as we can so that we can allocate the pie chart more to operational support and selecting the best opportunities. The way that we're able to do that is actually we invested in our own proprietary software. So we hired a bunch of offshore developers to pick up on that digital footprint and gather all these attributes about these potential targets and then integrate that software into third-party best-of-breed go-to-market software. And the really cool part about our uh, process, I feel like, is that once we get an entrepreneur really interested with us or interested in us and we're really interested in them, we'll actually demo our software to them. So we'll show them exactly how we found them, what attributes we picked up on, and how we scored them and how we moved them through our own funnel. And we'll say, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Entrepreneur, you can't use our software because it's built for our industry, but these best practices, that's what we're gonna bring to you to help you scale your business. That sounds like a pretty valuable piece of software. Any plans to sell a subscription? 
Well, the way that I think about it is that it's really just kind of fancy filtering software. Mm-hmm. You know, it would never be valuable as a third-party commercially available solution. But for us, it's really valuable, right? We target companies that are relatively small, right? 10 to 50 employees, one to 5 million of annual recurring revenue. And there are tons of those companies. If you think about the market uh, in the shape of a pyramid, we're targeting companies at the base of that pyramid. And there are so many. The reason why the pyramid is so wide is because it's really hard to get really big. But what it means for us is that we could spend all day, every day talking to companies that will never move up the pyramid. And so really what we're doing with the software is just filtering out the negatives, filtering out the ones that don't meet our criteria. What do you look for in these companies, both qualitatively and quantitatively? Perhaps there is certain metrics outside of revenue size. Yeah, we look for a few different things. The first is, as I said before, we we really care about finding founder market fit. We feel like founder market fit is a proxy for product market fit. So if a founder has lived the problem their business now solves, that says lots of great things about their business. And then from a financial metrics perspective, uh, we're looking for businesses that are at this early inflection point, right? They're generating one to five million of annual recurring revenue. They're growing nicely. They've got lots of customers, no customer concentration. They're at or approaching break even, and they're growing quickly without investing in their go-to-market. And we can figure out a lot of that stuff without ever talking to them. The last thing that we look for, which comes a little bit later in our process, but is uh, really important, is we look for companies where we think Growth Street in particular can help those companies grow, right? Can help them grow more efficiently. If we can't add value to those businesses, we can't stretch on valuation. We can't bridge the value gap with an entrepreneur. But if we think that our specific skills, our specific experience, our team can help that company get to that inflection point, then that's when we're able to find a a really nice match and to kind of meet or exceed the expectations of the founder. Can you quantify some of these characteristics? Let's say you're looking for revenue growth of 30 or 50%. It depends, you know, and I know you probably hate that answer. Yes. Uh, At the low end of the range, companies doing a million dollars of annual recurring revenue, they need to be growing pretty darn fast, right? They need to be growing close to 100%, uh, Mm. call it year over year. At the higher end of the range, you know, at the $5 million level, they can maybe be growing 30%, call it. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Really, what the growth is telling us and what the ARR is telling us relative to the amount of capital they've raised is how good that product market fit is, right? Mm -hmm. So if we have a founder from industry, we've got founder market fit, and then we've got financial metrics that show that the business can grow without that much capital. It can be pretty darn capital efficient. Then we feel like we've really got something. Does churn ever come to play? Absolutely. The way that we think about churn, like most investors, is gross churn, customer churn, and net churn. Hmm. And like my last answer, though, uh, people always ask me or entrepreneurs ask me, like, what's a good retention rate or what's a bad churn percentage? And again, it kind of depends because uh, our job at Growth Street is to uncover the good core business, if you will. So sometimes you can find a business that naturally just on its own has 90 plus percent gross retention, well over a hundred percent net retention. 
And you're really just kind of a momentum investor. You're giving them money to just fuel the fire. Sometimes there's a core business in there. They've got a $3 million ARR business and 2 million of it has that 90 plus percent retention and 120% net, right? But there's another million dollars where they're selling to a customer that's too small or not the right fit for them for whatever reason. And that's kind of part of the value add where we can come in and say, hey, listen, Mr. and Mrs. Entrepreneur, this $2 million business is amazing. And let's double down on that. And this $1 million business that doesn't quite fit your ideal customer profile, let's just stop selling to them. You know, let's not commission our salespeople. Let's not target our marketing to them. Let's just stop that. So the churn or retention question is always a little bit nuanced. You mentioned earlier that you look for companies where you can add value. So you just described one way you do it, which is refocusing the company on the right segment. How else do you guys add value? I kind of want to double click on the focus and the segmentation because usually what we find in the space where we're investing in companies where they're relatively early in their development, like they may have been around for five or 10 years, but they, as I said at the beginning, they haven't figured out how to scale yet. So the entrepreneurs that are running those businesses tend to want to take customers and revenue from wherever they can get it because they're bootstrapped, because they uh, don't have lots of capital on their balance sheet. They're willing to take that small customer or that customer that doesn't quite meet the criteria that they otherwise uh, would say is their best customer. And we take that conversation and that topic really seriously. And we think about how can we segment your customers? How can we segment your market to really get to what your true ideal customer is? And then how can we double down on that? And then all the other pieces of help that we bring to the table kind of come from that. That's the foundational piece of our value add. So we'll work on that segmentation. That'll help us understand how to structure our sales organization, how to structure our marketing organization, how to structure our customer success organization. It might also tell us that for this segment of the market and this segment of our customer base, those folks are really interested in buying this second or third or fourth module. And then we can start to think about how to help them sell more to the same customer over time. And it's sell more to their best customers. VC funds typically don't have operations team. Uh, PE funds typically do have. You mentioned you have one. What exactly do they do? Again, in the, the size of companies that we invest in, whether you're on the investment team or the operations team, the lines are really blurry. So we do have a dedicated operations team, but the handoffs between the investment team and the operations team, the demarcation lines are not very stark. When we're thinking about making an investment, we're doing a lot of the analysis that I just talked about, where we're getting you know, their all customers file, getting all sorts of financial data about all their customers, all sorts of qualitative attributes uh, tied to all that. We're running all sorts of numbers to figure out if it's a good potential investment for us. But that analysis is exactly the analysis that the operations team is also doing or doing in collaboration with the investment team to figure out how we're really going to help them. Because when we're evaluating the new investment, as I said before, we might find that, oh, these small customers or these small prospects are not good for us. So then the operations team is saying, well, yeah, how are we going to make sure 
that we stop talking to, engaging with, and selling those customers that aren't going to be good fits for us. And that's very much an operational decision that the uh, investment team wouldn't necessarily be expert in. So it's a little bit different than you know if you were at a large private equity firm where the line between uh, investment team and operations team is much more stark. I'm assuming your operations team includes former executives of SaaS businesses with multiple exits. That's a great question. Most firms out there, when they're thinking about uh, operations teams, they're usually thinking about operating partners. And they're thinking about the people that you just described, which are the executives that were at a large SaaS company that had a very successful exit. Usually the CEO or the CFO or the COO, somebody in the C-suite. For us, we're really looking to provide execution capacity to the firms that we're making investments in. And so the people that we have on our, on our operations team are doing just that. Yes, they have worked at SaaS companies before. They have worked in consulting roles, but they're really going to roll up their sleeves and actually do the stuff that I just described. So they're not doing a monthly or quarterly call giving advice. They're running the analyses that I uh, talked about before, and they're helping implement the programs that are going to effectuate the outcomes that we talked about. Let's talk about valuations of SaaS companies. What do you currently see in the market? You know, over the course of my career investing in SaaS companies, SaaS multiples, other than maybe a few months of deviation, have done nothing but go up. I think, you know, when I first started uh, looking at SaaS businesses, three times revenues was a big multiple. You know, nowadays, if you look at the public markets, they're 15 or 20 times revenues. In the growth equity world, the multiples have also gone up. And I would say uh, during COVID, it's been uninterrupted. The world if they hadn't already woken up to the subscription model before COVID, they certainly have now, right? Where uh, nobody wants to be selling widgets in the COVID world. They want to have subscriptions with long-term contracts and high gross margins. And so as a result, there's been flood of capital into the SaaS world and you've seen inflation, right? You've seen uh, multiples just go up. For us, based on where we're investing with businesses that, as I said at the beginning, are you know doing one to five million of revenue, they've got something that's working, but they haven't quite figured out how to scale it. You know, we're paying or we're seeing meaningful discounts to the public uh, markets, but still uh, really uh, robust valuations. I'm assuming the growth rate is the primary driver of the revenue multiple paid for a company. Uh, I'm wondering how do those multiples change when growth increases, let's say from 30% to 60%. You know, the relationship between growth rate and uh, revenue multiple is not linear. And let's say a 30% growth rate and a 90% growth rate is not 3x, right? So it wouldn't be two times revenues and six times revenues. If you're the faster you're growing, the uh, more your revenue uh, multiple is going to go up. And uh, really, all investors are doing is trying to predict what the revenue growth rate's going to be in three to five years, right? When they're trying to figure out what the valuation is in their models, they're saying, okay, I invest today in three to five years. What's this thing going to be growing at? The very shorthand for figuring that out is one, what's your current growth rate? And two, what's the size of your addressable market, right? If you have a high current growth rate and you have a large addressable market, then presumably you're going to have a higher future expected growth rate. So the valuation is going to be really high. Now at Growth Street, we don't want to just be momentum investors. We don't want to just invest when those two things are present and just give money for money's sake, 
What we'd like to do is find opportunities where, hey, the current growth rate isn't as high maybe as uh, we would want it to be, or the addressable market isn't as big as maybe uh, some investors would want it to be. But we have some differentiated view or way that we think we can help the entrepreneur to impact those things. So we can say, hey, uh, if we increase the retention rate or we do X, Y, or Z to increase what we think the chances are that the growth rate in three to five years is going to be higher, that's great, right? Or if we think we can sell a second or third module to the existing customers, not only does that increase our sales efficiency, but it also increases our TAM, right? Because now we get more revenue per customer. If you just multiply the number of total potential prospects by the total potential revenue we could get from them, our TAM goes up. So theoretically, we can impact those two things. And then we can you know, for Growth Street to be really successful and for our entrepreneurs to be really successful, we want to pay a fair price for those businesses that maybe aren't so perfect on day one. They don't have super high growth rates and super large TAMs. Uh, and then we can help them increase both of those things, which will make them a bigger and faster growing company in the end and make their the valuation, the revenue multiple that we would apply to them in uh, when we're thinking about selling, that revenue multiple would be that much higher. What's your take on rule of 40? Rule of 40 is kind of funny for us because the businesses are not generating EBITDA, certainly not on a gap basis. So the growth rates are hopefully north of 40. Uh, so uh, technically, when we make the investment, they're rule of 40 companies. When we're exiting uh, the businesses, so that what I just talked about, that you know growth rate in three to five years, hopefully they are definitely rule of 40 companies. If you look at the, the best public SaaS companies, they're like rule of 60, 70, 80 uh, companies. That's our goal, is that we can have businesses that we're exiting that are growing 40, 50, 60% plus and are generating a little bit of EBITDA. Did you say you hold investments for three to five years? Uh, at Growth Street, we say uh, we make investments for two to six years. Mm -hmm. Every time I say that, entrepreneurs and our investors say two years. And the reason why we say two to six years is because on the low end, that two-year period, sometimes these businesses can become strategically relevant and there can be strategic interest early. And that moment in time is more perishable than entrepreneurs or investors want to admit. The CEO of the acquirer, the head of corporate development at the acquirer, the principal or partner at that growth equity or private equity firm like, may have some reason why they're interested at that moment. And that moment may not last. And uh, you need to take it really seriously. So sometimes you can have opportunities where you have to think about doing something earlier than you otherwise would. And then the high end of that range, that the six years, we just include that because we can't invest forever. However, you know, sometimes with our investments, uh, we invested in a business called Visual Lease, which is a lease management and lease accounting SaaS business. It grew very fast after we uh, first invested, and we sold a piece of the business to Spectrum Equity about a year, year and a half uh, into our investment. And that did a couple things. Number one, it put capital on the balance sheet to help that business continue to grow. But number two, it allowed us to take a much longer view of the investment right? Because we weren't under pressure to think about when we needed to exit the investment. And so we could hold on to that business for another five years. Who knows? 
Who do you typically sell to? Strategic SP firms or maybe larger growth investors? And that's another thing that's changed over the last decade or so. Now, when we look at a new investment opportunity, when we're evaluating, hey, what's this exit going to look like? If we don't see a larger uh, software business that's owned by a growth equity or private equity firm, we start asking ourselves questions about that market. We're like, why isn't there somebody? Because there are so many firms and there's so much capital now that almost every end market, every vertical within software has a large software business that's backed by a private equity firm. So maybe, I don't know, a third to a half of the time we would expect the businesses to get sold to either a private equity firm or a portfolio company of a private equity firm. And then the balance would be probably strategics. And that, by the way, that percentage has been going nothing but up uh, in terms of the percentage that are sold to private equity firms or firms that are backed by private equity firms. I've noticed that more and more of large PE and VC funds are adding growth strategies. How do you compete with them? Yeah, so my co-founder and I came from a larger growth equity firm, and we noticed that all of these firms are raising larger and larger pools of capital. And they're trying to make larger and larger investments. I agree with you that the very large private equity firms have probably started growth equity practices, but also the growth equity businesses have uh, largely moved up market. And uh, we started Growth Street to focus on this kind of early growth capital space where the entrepreneur has something that's working, but they haven't quite figured out how to scale it. We can make a meaningful minority investment and help them grow to the point where they can get to all of that capital that you've just talked about. The number of firms that are uh, just above us, you know, $500 million fund plus has done nothing but grow over the last 10 years. And they're all looking for good SaaS businesses with high growth rates and high retention rates. And hopefully our portfolio will be those companies and there'll be lots of opportunities for them to either invest behind or to acquire. Does it ever happen that entrepreneurs themselves reach out to Grove Street to raise funds? And if so, what do they typically need to prepare for the process? Most of the time, uh, we're doing outbound to these entrepreneurs. So, you know, maybe 70 or 80% of our opportunities are coming from our outbound efforts. 20 or 30% are coming from inbound through channel partners or through referrals or things like that. And we, and we track that religiously. The best founders, the ones that where the due diligence process and just the whole process, even after due diligence goes the smoothest, it's when the founders are already really diligently tracking all contracts, right? They're all contracts file, right? They're already uh, looking at every single one of their customers and tracking all of the financial attributes about them and all of these qualitative attributes about them. And they're starting to figure out that customers that look like this are better for me and customers that look like this are not as good for me. And we can really take that to the next level. The founders where the due diligence process is more onerous or uh, more challenging are the ones where uh, they haven't started to think about that where they're just taking in customers and taking in revenue wherever they can get it. And they aren't thinking critically about who their best and who their worst customers are. What's a typical time period between you first meeting the founder and actually investing in the company? It's an interesting question. Given the stage where we're investing, the biggest risk that we take and the biggest risk that the founders take is key person risk. 
if we make an investment in a business that's doing 2 million of annual recurring revenue and the founder comes from industry, so they really understand their customer and their end market. And that makes them invaluable to the product and to lots of components of their business. If that founder got hit by a bus, we're in trouble. Just the same way that if the founder took investment from Growth Street and uh, Nate got hit by a bus or I got hit by a bus or somebody on our team got hit by a bus, that founder would be in trouble in many respects. So we're actually trying to talk to uh, entrepreneurs when they're not ready to take an investment, when they don't want to take an investment. Because if the sales cycle is really short, the key person risk is really elevated. Mm -hmm. And we can't get to a valuation that makes sense for the entrepreneur. And the entrepreneur's valuation expectations are really high because they don't trust us. And so you never get to a transaction that works for everyone. But if you spend time getting to know each other, then all of a sudden the valuation expectations come together and you can have something that really works. So we want to talk to companies early and get to know them, get to know their businesses, and then make an investment when, gosh, it feels so right on both sides. And what's been really interesting recently, and I know this wasn't exactly your question, but in COVID, one would anticipate that this would be a really hard thing to diligence. But ironically, it's been a lot easier because with Zooms, we can actually see into the entrepreneur's home. Before COVID, my co-founder and I used to have this exercise before we would make an investment. We would close our eyes and we would imagine how the founder treated their spouse, how the founder treated their children, how they treated their neighbor, how they treated their pet. It was just a thought exercise to try to figure out what kind of partner is that entrepreneur going to be after we invest. And now in COVID, we meet the pet. You know, We see the spouse come into the Zoom and say hello. And uh, we actually get literally a window into their personal life that we never got before. You know, uh, before we always got the, I don't know the right term, maybe like a, the dress rehearsal. Like they put on their costume, went into their office, sat in their conference room and put on a play for us for four hours. And now you can't put on a play. You know, the doorbell rings and you either uh, yell at somebody to go get it or you uh, say, excuse me, I need to put the Zoom on pause for a second while I go get it. And you learn about how these people treat their family members, how they treat other people. And it's, it's been incredibly insightful, actually. I don't think we'll ever go back to the old world as a result. That's interesting. COVID has changed a lot of things. You know, I wanted to step back, though, for a second. Uh, you mentioned that there has to be a fit between you and the founder. When you sell the company, do you look for the same fit? Or is it mostly a maximization of the return that drives the decision? You know, I hate being the it depends guy, but it does depend, right? If we're selling 100% of a business, then valuation is critically important. I mean, I guess it's kind of obvious, right? If we're selling 20% or 30% or 40% of a business, then other factors come really into play. Can they help us increase the value of the piece of the business that we're still going to own? Will they be able to work with this entrepreneur in a constructive way to help them be uh, more successful. And 
on that continuum, valuation becomes more or less important. Think of it, we uh, kind of in a very self-serving way at Growth Street, talk to entrepreneurs when we're trying to make an investment. And we make this exact argument to them. And we say, listen, we want to buy a meaningful minority stake of the business. You are still going to control the business. So think really carefully about whether we're the right partner for you. Think really carefully about whether we can add the kind of value that you want, because that's way more important than the you know, one or two or three percent of dilution that a change in valuation makes versus if we were buying all of the business. I mean, they shouldn't care other than their legacy about anything else besides valuation. Have you ever been in a position when you wanted to sell the business, but the founder didn't like the buyer? Uh, no, and I should be knocking on wood like crazy. Uh, but we have an expression at Growth Street that Nate, my co-founder, and I, we say sometimes we disagree initially, but we always agree in the end. And we want to build a firm where that's part of our culture. We might disagree with an entrepreneur on day one, you know, or at the beginning of a process about whether we should sell all of the company or a piece of the company or whether we should sell to buyer A or buyer B. But at the end of the day, we agree. And if we make that a fundamental part of our culture, then uh, knock on wood, we're not going to have that terrible scenario that you described where the cap table is not aligned, that they brought in an investor like Growth Street, that they being the entrepreneur, and they say, I would never sell to that person. And we say, gosh, you got to sell to that person. That's a really bad place to be. So you spoke about the founders and the companies you look for. So maybe you could provide a few examples from your current portfolio. Yeah, I'll give you an example or two. Uh, one guy, Tim Ballantine, uh, founded a business called Suralink. It's an audit workflow SaaS business for CPA firms. Tim was an auditor and then a financial controller. And he literally lived the problem that his business now solves. And when he talks about his industry, no one knows it better. And we can help enable him with capital, with help, with all this stuff and help him uh, grow faster and de-risk. Another uh, one of our uh, founder partners is a, a woman, Deb Muller. And Deb uh, is the founder of a company called HR Acuity. It's a SaaS business that sells investigation management and employee relations management software. What that really means is, you know, you work at a big company and there's an employee issue. To be a little crass, somebody grabs somebody's at the holiday party and in the olden days, that would be resolved you know, with an email and basically swept under the rug. But Deb built software to make sure that all of these incidents are handled in a timely manner, handled professionally, handled confidentially, handled fairly, all of these great things because she literally had that job at Honeywell and Dun & Bradstreet. And so when we partner with her and give her capital and give her the resources, like the sky is the limit. And the most fun part about partnering with entrepreneurs like that is that when we make our investment of call it three to $12 million in exchange for that meaningful minority stake, that investment is not an estate planning event for them. They're not putting away tens of millions of dollars and uh, saying, geez, I'm rich now. I don't need to work hard. This is truly a growth equity investment to help them accelerate their growth and to get them to that estate planning event later. 
And so if we can do it, we get friends for life, right? And one of the ways that we judge ourselves is by an internal KPI where it's how many of our founders, the founders that we invested behind, invest in us. How many of them are actually limited partners in our fund? And if they are investors in Growth Street, that means they've had a really successful outcome and they really like us and they really trust us and they want to be partnered with us for the next you know, 10 plus years. So how many of them are limited partners? Uh, I should have known the number exactly off the top of my head, but uh, both of the companies that have had liquidity events, they're both investors in the fund. Some of the founders that we worked with prior to starting Growth Street, they're also uh, investors in the fund. A couple of the others that have not had liquidity events are investors too. Steve, thank you very much for the interview.